0: City streets, and the quiet
1: town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence,
0: where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations.
1: Adoption is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, as it is to many couples longing to be parents or wanting to expand their families. So when I came across two recent cases involving adoption fraud, I was heartbroken, outraged, and determined to protect people who are already feeling vulnerable and keep everyone involved from being taken advantage of. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on recognizing and avoiding adoption scams. I am delighted to introduce today's guest, attorney Derek Williams. After adopting his own two children, Derek started getting asked to represent other families in the adoption process, and he has spent the last 15 years representing adopting parents, agencies, and birth parents. He is a fellow of the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys, and has also featured in Adopting in America, How to Adopt Within One Year, one of the best resources on adoption. Welcome to the show, Derek.
0: Thank you very much, Joni. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, it's great to have you, and I wanna start out by saying how thrilled I am that we are both adoptive parents, and I knew absolutely nothing about adoption before my husband and I started the process, and I don't think I'm alone with that, and so I wanted to start out by asking you as an adoption attorney, what are some of the most common misperceptions that prospective parents have when they come to you?
0: I get both ways, that it's simple and easy, but also that it's overwhelmingly complicated, burdensome and emotional. And I think of a truth fall somewhere right in the middle probably. I think many couples still believe that adoptions are closed most of the time, that there's not contact between the child, the adoptive child and the biological parents, and that they will never really need to address with their children, the fact that they're adopted. And that, from a psychological standpoint, I'm sure you know, is changing dramatically with the advent of the internet and, and social media and, and the way couples are getting connected to birth parents. And most adoptions now are open, and there's lots of contact and communication between all the parties. Um,
1: and does that tend to be a mutual agreement, between the birth mom or birth parents and the adoptive parents so they're going to have an open adoption?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's it's something that we try to facilitate that contact or communication between them, me as an adoption attorney, using the social workers that are involved or the other attorneys that are involved. That's a really important topic that's addressed up front between them so that they can figure out whatever openness means to them. And it really still varies. Some of them are closer to being closed and only there's a letter once a year or a picture once in a while, all the way to wide open where they're meeting weekly and getting together and visiting and whatever. And so, but it is a topic that I address in every single one of of my adoptions to make sure going in that both of them are on the same page as to what's expected.
1: One of the changes I would imagine that you just alluded to is the role of social media or the internet in this whole process. I mean, my last adoption was, wow, almost 16 years ago. And so that's a lifetime when it comes to technology. So how are are you seeing technology being used in the adoption process?
0: Well, primarily, I think it's being used to match, to connect an adoptive couple that's looking with a birth mother that is looking. And friends of friends and seeing profiles online or sharing things on social media for a couple to say, we're looking, let me know if you hear anything. Friends of friends of friends or old high school people they haven't seen in 20 years may have a niece that has an unexpected pregnancy that's looking for a parent. And and so connections are made and facilitated much, much easier if you used an agency like I did for my adoptions, my my children are 16 and 12 now, and we used an agency with both of them. The old days you'd, you'd prepare that hard copy profile with your pictures and a letter to the birth mother and you give it to the agency. And then they provide that copies, those hard copies to a birth mother to look at. And they present four or five profiles to the birth mother and, and Now all of that's really gone and profiles are online and birth mothers can look from the comfort of their own home and bedroom and privacy and find the couple without needing anyone in between, which leads us to many of the problems that we're going to go on to discuss.
1: I've heard many prospective parents say, hey, if I can use the internet to find a birth mom. I don't need an adoption attorney necessarily. I don't need an adoption agency. And I would imagine, and I feel similarly, that there are some serious drawbacks with that decision.
0: They obviously have to go to court and finalize an adoption and get a court decree of adoption. And so they would need an attorney at some point. But I think what you might be alluding to is people that think I can match with the birth mother and I can talk to her and we can set all this up and we can handle everything and then later at some point we'll bring the attorney in to do the paperwork and we can do it without the agency's help. And, and you're correct that there is so much, that's very, very dangerous and there's so much work that is done by either the attorney in, in a direct placement adoption or sometimes I refer to them as private adoptions but that's just contrasting it from an agency adoption. An attorney facilitating a private adoption and an agency and their representatives that are running an agency adoption, they provide a lot of services beyond legal paperwork in order to make sure that that adoption is safe, is ethically done, very importantly, and protects everybody involved.
1: I remember when we were adopting our son, it was a domestic adoption, and we were just so excited about the thought of adding to our family. And when we met with an attorney, he was the one who actually found a birth mom, I guess that was like the old days, like you were saying. He asked us some questions that we didn't even think about. Things like, you know, we need to make sure that she really is pregnant, or what do you think about regular drug strains? what about communicating with her doctor and i could not really have imagined going to this birth mom who's already in a tough situation and asking some of those hard questions
0: definitely there are a lot of sensitive topics that need to be worked through by the time i get called usually there's been a match or or there's been some contact between them already and i'll say How do you feel about your relationships thus far or your contact thus far? And and maybe it's a family-related match or maybe it's someone they know or an intermediator they know and they're very comfortable. That situation, they may be able to address some of those topics more easily. If it's with a stranger they've never met before and they're at the very beginning of that relationship, I'll often say, now I can handle some of these screening things that we need to do. We need to look for some of these red flags. I can handle that through my process with my counterparts in that other state or with the social worker that we're going to have working with the birth mother or whatever the team is that we set up for that particular case. You got to remember, Joni, they're building sort of an emotional connection and relationship. The couple is kind of selling themselves a little bit on we're going to be great parents and we want you to trust us with your baby, the birth mother is, is trying to put on, um, her best face and, and, and they're working on an emotional connection and relationship building. And the the last thing they want to do sometimes is talk about money or expenses or, prove to me that i should trust you and you're really pregnant and and so there are definitely some of these areas that are sensitive that it's really a benefit to have a professional involved in a a system set up to handle um, those topics
1: so what kind of screening would you do somebody comes to you and says hey we are wanting to adopt we found this birth mom we've been communicating online What would you want to know?
0: So a lot of it depends on how they connected and if it's a sort of a cold call connection where the birth mother emails them out of nowhere and they don't know where she came from or anything, obviously that's different than my brother-in-law's got somebody at work that they know and you know that sort of thing so let's take the most common situation where fraud and scams happen is this cold call sort of situation where a couple is contacted out of the blue and and the birth mother says i found your profile on parentfinder or adoption.com or wherever and i am interested and that's where the most screening is usually needed to be done and so i i talk to them about what facts they know what has she said what has she sent them i gather as much information as i can and then i tell them what i do is i like to if she's in another state most commonly they're in different states I find another trusted adoption professional, an attorney usually in that other state. And I contact that attorney and say, we have this potential situation and we would like you to help be involved on that end with the birth mother. And we'd like to involve you in helping us screen this. And can you contact her? Preferably meet in person with your potential new client and verify the pregnancy through eyes on, through whatever else she has to confirm for us and to see how this feels. And when you have a lawyer or sometimes we use an adoption specialized social worker, a social worker that's experienced in working with birth mothers and knows how to ask those questions, that trained professional can ask the right questions, can have their own gut instinct can give some advice back to us on our side from someone on the ground in that state it's really difficult to do it I think without someone on the other side just because as you know they can manufacture sonograms you can doctor medical records you can do all kinds of things to make it look like someone's pregnant. I mean, we need to look for red flags, but that can usually come out in the follow-up communication and ongoing discussions with the birth mother through the questions that I tell them to ask. and, And the way that they ask them can usually also manifest some red flags if they're already.
1: So what are those red flags that you look for and that you would encourage prospective adoptive parents to look for in their conversations with birth moms?
0: So oftentimes some red flags would be a reluctance to discuss medical prenatal history or physician care or how many times they've been or that sort of thing. It can also be a request for money right out of the gate. I'm in crisis. I want you to adopt my child, but I'm going to lose my apartment tomorrow. I need you to help me. If, if, I want you to adopt my child. I've already decided this, but I I need you to wire some money by Western Union to my landlord, and here's a number. And we have to figure out how to verify if that's really a landlord. And 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 we're just right out of the gate in the first weeks, one week, or sometimes I've had it in the first day or two of connection. They're in crisis and need money quickly, and that's a that's a huge red flag whenever finances become the the number one topic of discussion, rather than what kind of couple are you? Where do you live? Do you have other kids? What are your professions? How are you, what are your beliefs and and standards and all that sort of stuff? If, If it becomes more about solving a crisis and getting money to her quickly, that's a big red flag.
1: That's so interesting. One of the things that really drew me to the birth mom that we used in adopting our son that we're still in contact with, was the fact that we could tell from the very beginning that she really took her part in meeting with us and asking those questions of us. We could tell it was a very important decision for for her. And that really reassured us that she did have this child's best interest at heart. And I could certainly see why um, if you have someone, for example, who is more concerned about the money, particularly in the absence of those other concerns because it is possible, I guess, in theory, that a birth mom could find herself in a difficult situation and need some immediate help. Yeah. But particularly when you have that in the absence of somebody who doesn't seem to care at all about you as a couple and your values and your parenting ideas and how you plan to discipline and those kind of things, I would think that would be a real red flag.
0: Yeah, it is. And you make a great point. I, I don't want to imply ever that. That there are not situations, unexpected pregnancies often come in a crisis time of a woman's life, and those are real situations. And that's why anyone that's that finds the adoptive couples that find themselves in that situation really need to have a team of professionals on both sides of this to to everyone work together to assess and figure out and screen this the best way they can to. To figure out um, if this is something that that's going to work and is and is a real situation, and I have I have helped facilitate the payment of, of legitimate adoption expenses in situations where the mother needed it, and we were able to get some confirmation and and some help on her side through social work or an attorney to to sort of confirm some of that. But I've also had situations where the, the couple, I mean, we'll, we'll probably get into this, but it's a real thing for these couples to be so emotionally excited and and sometimes desperate and just we will do anything to have a family that I I don't care if we lose some of this money if she's asking for money we want this opportunity of this baby and we can't let it go give it to her and I'll say well I'm not going to do that unless it's legal and if we can work through that and they you know but they're coming in from a standpoint of of such we cannot we've been waiting for so long and we've had three failed adoptions and and this one needs to stick so we've gotta we can't lose it by saying no right out of the gate. You need to help us make this happen. And so I often I'm awful often battling my own clients, the couples in in some of these screening issues and I'm warning them this is risky and this is very high risk. And they say we understand thank you but do it. We can't lose this. And so the battle and the, and, and the tug of, of war is on both sides.
1: You know, this is such a tough question for me to ask you. But one of the things that we learned le- much later on with our birth mom is that there were prospective adoptive families who were offering to pay her, not just for adoption expenses. And I remember her telling me, and this was, again, she never... Wavered in terms of picking our family. We're very, very lucky and we still consider ourselves extremely lucky to have our son. But we heard stories from her later on after our child was born that there was a couple that was offering to fly her to Hawaii for her entire pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, I totally understand, as you alluded to, kind of the desperation and longing that prospective parents feel in these situations. I just wonder if... Those kinds of things can increase the odds that there is a scam or some kind of fraud or or taking advantage of by being that persuasive, I guess, or attempting to sell yourself in that way.
0: Yeah, I have not had experiences where I have felt pressure from the adoptive couple to to we want you to offer her these extra things. And, and that might be in part because I'm fairly strict in my ethical standards that I follow as a practitioner and I'm pretty quick to say I just won't do this and, and I'm only gonna allow expenses to be paid that I believe I can justify with the court at the end as legitimate adoption expenses. And, and I think that's important for the professionals to have lines that they draw for their ethical standards, so they don't get persuaded or or tempted to to get into that. Mess.
1: Let's take a let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's delve into a couple of these cases that have been in the media lately, and I think we can maybe segue into talking about what does this mean specifically in terms of some of those red flags we're talking about.
0: Sure, sounds good.
1: You are listening to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and my guest today is attorney Derek Williams, who is an adoption attorney and an expert in helping birth parents and prospective adoptive parents navigate what is complicated but can be a very, very joyful outcome.
0: AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty
1: and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots,
0: blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa.
1: We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. We have a very interesting show today looking at adoption scams, how to recognize them, how to avoid them. And we're also very fortunate to have adoption attorney, Derek Williams, who's on our show. And we were going to talk about some of the cases that have been in the media. The first one I want to talk about is a woman named Tara Lynn Lee, who in late February of this year was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which is a really lengthy prison term. But I think partly this was because the judge was so outraged by the facts of this case. And this was a woman who, between 2014 and 2018, ran what she called an adoption agency. And I guess at various points in time, she pretended to be everything from a doula to an adoption counselor to a social worker. And I think, in fact, she was actually none of these, and her agency was not licensed. And While she did facilitate some legitimate adoptions, it became clear over time that she was doing a couple of really unethical things. For example, she would match one birth mom to multiple families. And so you would have more than one family who were Extremely excited about welcoming a baby to the family, you know, having getting their nursery in order, telling their relatives, maybe having baby showers. And of course, these individuals are also paying for medical expenses, living expenses of this birth mom. And of course, as you might imagine, as the due date got closer, then Tara had to come up with some reason why only one of these families would get this child. And I have no idea to this day how she picked which family would actually get this baby. But another thing she did was she actually at times made up birth parents where there actually was not a birth mom. And I know she had at least one woman who conspired with her and was on the phone with a couple of respective adoptive families pretending to be a birth mom. And so ugh, this is such a very difficult case for me personally and I think I can only imagine what it was like for the disappointed families. But why don't you just get your take on this case?
0: Yeah, sure. it's just it's every bit of heartbreak that I think the judge felt. And the judge, from what I learned and read about the sentencing, the judge was so strong in his sentence because of what he heard from these couples and what i what he heard from them was not just the the financial scam not just the loss and their savings that they had saved up for years to adopt a baby but this was a combination of financial money scam and an emotional scam it it was the breach of a trust that they had in someone they believed was a professional and an ethical professional, right? It's the betrayal of someone that is portraying themselves to to be doing this for all the right reasons. And adoptive couples and birth mothers in, in this situation really, really trust those that are taking charge of their adoption process. They're putting the building of their families, they're putting their, you know, their marriages, their future into this person to help me have a family and to help me place my baby for adoption. And they need to be able to trust these people that are doing it. And the violation of that trust just hurts so, so deep. I'm sure that was far, far worse than the financial loss.
1: From a psychologist's point of view, I've thought quite a bit about this case because there's kind of the surface explanation that, okay, this person is a con artist, perhaps. This is someone who's in it for the money, has found a way to make money, has found a system that she thinks works for her. But I have to say, it's hard for me to just accept that it was purely financial. And, and what makes me say that, Derek, I think is because this is not someone who is frauding people or scamming people from a distance. I mean, this is somebody who is literally on the phone with prospective adoptive parents. She's developing relationships with them. She is hearing all about their excitement. She's hearing about perhaps infertility struggles. And it just makes it so hard for me to just say, okay, this is just you know a typical scam because it's just such a mean way in a way to scam yeah. people. I have a really hard time getting my arms for that. Have you ever come across someone in your practice that you felt like was that calculated in terms of wanting to take advantage of people?
0: Well, maybe one time in a, in a private direct placement adoption where the couple was out of state and I was called by the professional in that state, the, the birth mother was in my state in Utah and I was asked to facilitate some expenses and to verify pregnancy. And I went out and it took a lot for me to even let her meet her. But in order to get this money that she needed in this crisis, and I tried to talk the couple out of state out of doing it, but they insisted. And anyway, when I met her, I I just felt something that was akin to sort of this con mentality or or this mentality of I don't really care about the harm this is going to cause. I just need to solve my next problem and they're a means to an end. And I felt that way a couple of times in dealing with her. And I tried to explain that to the folks on the other side. And and it ended up falling through and it came through as being a scam. And they apologized and thanked me for trying to warn them. But I I could just feel something that that was an emptiness that they didn't care about the effects of their actions.
1: I wonder how much perspective parents meeting a birth parent early in that process would help at least get a sense of that person and not that necessarily a prospective family would pick up on all the red flags you would as somebody who's been in this business for a long period of time, but at least would get more of a sense of it being able to assess that person one-on-one. Is that something that you encourage families yeah. to connect early on?
0: Definitely. If that's at all possible, that's always a, a real a real help the problem we get into is logistics in today's age where many of these matches are east coast to west coast or far away and, and the question i get is well when should we fly out to wherever and 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 meet her is it time should we look into it further should we should we talk more and and that's always a tough question but if the family can afford to pick up and go and take a long weekend and go do a visit, I always recommend that and support that. And I help them prepare for those kind of early meetings when you're in the same state or in a nearby state where it's easy to drive and and meet. Definitely that, that, that's going to draw out the red flags. The more in-person contact or direct emotional contact you can have, I think the harder it is to hide some of these scams.
1: The other thing I think that is a takeaway for me in that particular case, and it's not something that I think would be obvious to many people, but there was at least one couple who had adopted before and when Tara Lee contacted them and said, this birth mom has selected you, one of the things that led to this particular couple Basically saying, we're not interested in this particular case is because when Tara Lynn Lee contacted them and said, this birth mom has selected you, one of the things they said was she doesn't know anything about us. She's not asking any questions about us. She doesn't seem interested in meeting us. And of course this couple benefited from the fact that they had adopted before so they could compare this experience they were having with other experiences. And I think maybe a takeaway would be not only to meet that birth mom if you can, but also to develop a network of people who have successfully adopted and be able to understand and know their experience. So you have some kind of baseline that you can prepare what's happening with you with all these other stories that are successful.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And the good thing about that is that's that's much more readily available to find mentors. A Facebook page of adoptive parents, friends that you know that have adopted, other connections, but finding someone that's been through it that you can say, how does this situation sound?
1: I want to make a distinction, of course, between adoption fraud or an adoption scam, which is a deliberate attempt to misrepresent a goal or an agenda, and a birth mom who changes her mind because they're different and it's a huge and difficult decision oftentimes for birth moms. I wonder at the same time, if there are warning signs or red flags of a birth mom who, whether it's that she's not really telling herself the truth or she's not as clear as she says she is, or are there things that you look for that would make you concern that this adoption is going to fall through or may fall through.
0: Yeah, there are. So some of those would be a reluctance to make plans, a reluctance to talk about the openness afterwards. I don't know, I'll get back to you. Let's not address that right now. It's too difficult for me to think about some of some of those types of things could be. Now, I want to be careful and make it clear that the emotions that a birth mother goes through in this process are very real and they're very difficult. And I have the utmost respect for my, my two birth mothers. I, I think they both would be fine. If I gave their names, Kendra and Brooke are, are angels to me and I couldn't be a a father without them. And I keep them high on a pedestal in, in my life and in my home. And I I cry just simply thinking about the days that they placed their babies in my arms and we cried together and the emotion they go through is real and it's difficult and it sometimes takes a long, long time to get past. And so I don't want to minimize by by saying that a red flag could just be a, a, a birth mother who's emotional and, and having a hard time making this decision or going through this process because that can be completely normal. My point is, sometimes we need to at least advise my clients, and the couple needs to know this one is really difficult. Um, she's avoiding sort of some of the planning with her social worker. We always try to put together a hospital plan, which is how do you want the hospital to go? How, who's going to hold the baby first? Do you want to spend time with the baby? Do you not? where do you want the couple? Who do you want to visit? That hospital plan is important. And sometimes we get down to the end and the social worker we've got working with them comes to me and says, "I, I can't get her to fill this out. I can't get her to focus on it and think about it. She's just so distraught about the idea of placing this baby. And so in those situations, Usually the couples can sense it from their own communication, their own video calls or meetings with the birth mother, and they can sense that she's really having a hard time with this. And, and, and those can be, I hate to even use the word red flag because it implies intentional, and it's not. There are definitely legitimate signs that it could be a difficult placement for some birth mothers. Those would be what I would watch out for and talk about.
1: You know, what percentage of prospective parents offer to pay for birth moms to go to therapy or to have some support in that respect? Because it is such a difficult decision. And and we were very lucky in the sense that my husband and I were both really clear that it had to be a win-win for everybody. In other words, of course, it would have been very painful if our birth mom had changed her mind. But at the same time, I would not have wanted to adopt a child from somebody who really wasn't clear that that's what she wanted yeah. and i would think that could be very helpful for the birth mom no matter what decision she ended up making
0: that is so important and and that is one of the easiest expenses that i talk to my adoptive couple clients about which and when i say easiest meaning the easiest to get them to a, to <laughs> agree to pay the therapy and counseling both pre-placement and post-placement is critical. It's it's super important for the well-being of everybody involved, but mostly for that for that birth mother. It does result in a better relationship for everybody long term if she is supported through the process and after. Different states have different laws. The state I'm in, Utah, we have a state law that requires That the adoptive couple offer to pay up to three sessions of counseling uh, for a birth mother she's not required by law to take it and do it but we're required to offer it to her to make sure that that's given or at least offered and i always uh, encourage that and set that up in my private adoptions or my direct placement adoptions we're hiring a social worker in every case we can to work with the birth mother. And sometimes the the social worker comes back and says, she doesn't want any, she doesn't want to talk to me. She only wants to do paperwork. And I say, try again. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. But boy, an ethical adoption practice for a lawyer or certainly agencies are required to provide that kind of social service and and counseling support, usually by state regulations if they're a licensed agency. But anyone working in the field involved in the process ought to be including very good qualified clinical social work counseling for the birth mother if she'll accept it. I also have organizations for birth mothers, post-placement organizations that are groups for birth mothers that I'll recommend that the couple offer to buy a membership to or a subscription to this online organization so that they have a place to go to once this is all over, they may not need clinical counseling and social work, but they might need social interaction with other birth mothers, and, and those kind of organizations are really helpful, and I recommend those to clients sometimes to offer maybe as a gift to the birth mother or as a support to the birth mother afterwards.
1: Now, we've talked about adoption fraud really more from a financial perspective when Either it's the agency is involved in trying to get money unscrupulously, or you're hearing a birth mom who's solely focused on money. But there is another kind of scammer out there when it comes to adoption, and that is what I call the emotional scammer. And I know that there have been situations where the motive for pretending to be pregnant, the motive for contacting a birth parent wasn't to get money. It was to get attention. And I would love your input, Derek, about how often that happens, that you see that happening, and maybe there are some warning signs there.
0: Yeah, that one's a little bit harder. Well, it's much harder, actually, to sort of screen out and detect, because it usually takes a long period of time to figure that one out. But my experience is it's usually after they've gone a long ways down the road where my couples will be like, man, she is texting us 20 times a day and it's never about the baby and it's about other things going on. And she's asking for help with family situations or she's asking for my advice or I can't get anything done at home because she's always needing to talk. And, and, and pretty soon it wears down the couple to where, the relationship is not going in the direction they want to go in and it's feels, something feels weird with, with the nature of it. And I don't, they don't ever come to me and say, I think she's, she's scamming us and she's not really going to place the baby for adoption. It's, I don't know how to manage this. I need help figuring out how to, to deal with these uh, situations or questions or involvements or the level of involvement she's got us in that I, I don't know how to do. And and as a lawyer, I will often say, man, I think you need to talk to your social worker that did your home study or is working with you on your side of the adoption and get some advice from a social worker or someone that can help you talk about how to manage these relationships. I, I have not really, to be honest, been in situations where it went all the way to the end and there was no placement and we tied it directly to an emotional scam And that was her purpose and reason. But I have had some fall through where the couple finally said, I just, we don't see this working out long term as a after in the level of openness that she wants and that we can, we don't feel like we can devote this much to her after the placement long term either. And I've had a couple of those types of situations where the couples made decisions Um, for some of those reasons.
1: And I've interviewed a couple of people and I would agree that number one, it seems to surface as a pattern of behavior after the relationship has started. So it's not so much that you can screen out at the beginning because there's no baseline of how this person normally acts. But those are some of the same stories that I've heard, Derek is having somebody who is extremely demanding of that person's time, um, always looking for sympathy, their life being one crisis after the next. Sometimes the stories not matching up about about what's going on. And while I haven't really also heard of somebody going all the way to the end, I certainly have heard of, and it's rare. I want to make that very clear. And all these I think are relatively rare. Um, But a, a situation I'm thinking about recently where the, Prospective parents just became so overwhelmed and frustrated by the amount of time this person and attention was demanding that when they started setting some limits with the birth mom, she disappeared. And it later became evident that this person actually wasn't even pregnant. So again, that's a very unusual situation, I think. But when you're talking about somebody who might be connecting with individuals for emotional reasons I think it is probably only over time that would become clear or that question would be raised
0: Yeah and, and I think this is also sometimes we we've, we're talking about an emotional scam in this situation but I think there are sometimes where legitimate adoptions, come with some of the same issues that couples have to determine whether they can continue and and it may not be a scam at all in terms of placing the child but the emotional attachment and needs don't match what the couples anticipating or or able to take on
1: and i think that's such a good point because particularly if you're talking about a more open adoption you really aren't just adding a baby to your family In some respects, you're adding another family to your family. Yeah. And so that relationship has got to be as smooth as possible or it's going to be difficult for everybody involved. Let's take a quick break and we come back. I want to talk about the Paul Peterson case, which I know you know a lot about. And then let's spend the rest of the time talking about the joys of adoption and how we can, we've already alluded to some of these, make this run as smoothly as possible. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Derek Williams. Our topic is recognizing and avoiding adoption scams and we'll be right back. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli. Forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the Warren Police at Amazon.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Threat of Evidence. My guest today is Derek Williams, who is an adoption attorney, and we are really having such a fascinating discussion about adoption fraud or adoption scams and how you can recognize and prevent those. And We talked already about the Tara Lindley case, and I want to shift gears and talk about the Paul Peterson case. And I know, Derek, that you know quite a bit about this case, and maybe you can shed some light for the rest of us.
0: Sure. Um, Mr. Peterson's an, an attorney, licensed attorney out of Arizona. He also became licensed in Utah, where I practice a couple of years ago and his specialty as an adoption attorney he, he also had other professions he was a, an elected official in Arizona and Maricopa County and then did this adoption work on the side but his specialized area of adoption was connecting birth mothers from the Marshall Islands with couples and families in the United States and assisting with the birth mothers coming over from the islands or sometimes Marshallese um, families that already lived in the United States and wanted to place their babies for adoption um, with U.S. couples. And there became a lot of red flags and question marks over time from everybody involved in the process, from hospitals, nurses, social workers, Attorneys representing the couples adopting, and government officials all becoming concerned with the pattern of what they were seeing and some of the outcomes that that were occurring, and some of the things they were hearing and seeing from the birth mothers that led to a lengthy investigation. It took years to develop the evidence and led to charges last year uh, against Mr. Peterson, both federal and state criminal charges related to trafficking, inter-country trafficking of women, as well as financial fraud related to the money that he charged for his services.
1: So what were the things that he was doing that were unethical and or illegal?
0: So what's alleged, and he, he hasn't been convicted or pled yet, so there are allegations, but what's alleged is that he would recruit the birth mothers from the islands. He had a history um, with the Marshallese people. He he was a, a missionary for his church in, when he was younger and in the Marshall Islands and spoke the language and came home and, and sort of kept that connection. And and he um, knew the people there and understood them. And, and so he would recruit them to come over my understanding, and I'm not a specialist in in immigration law, but I believe there's an open visa arrangement and treaty with the United States to where they, they could travel here freely and openly. There are laws that say you cannot travel for the purpose of placing your child for adoption, but they could travel for for visits for family to work whatever and and so some of the allegations are that they were coached as to what to say at the at the entry points when they would fly into the united states and they're six or seven or eight months pregnant and they would give their reasons for coming and they would come here and he would house them often in homes that he owned and and there would be a caretaker and they would wait until they delivered and he would take them to a local hospital and and they would deliver and place the baby for adoption and then after Few days or weeks, they would return to the Marshall Islands, and the allegations are that that some of the money that he would collect, anywhere from um, thirty-five to forty thousand, generally is is what he would charge the couple for one of these adoptions. Some portion of that would be promised or paid back to the birth mother uh, when she returned to the islands, and and so the allegations are that he was paying these ladies to sell their babies, basically, and, and that's against many different laws, criminal laws and adoption laws that, that you can't exchange money for the purpose of placing your baby for adoption. The couples wouldn't know if that was happening, obviously, and they're paying an adoption fee to an attorney and they don't know what he's doing with it, and so there's, there's a, a, an element of fraud in there. There are other allegations I've heard of about him um, potentially trying to get them on Medicaid when they would come to the United States so that, so that Medicaid would pay the medical expenses, which increases the amount of money left for him, and, and because he, they wouldn't have to pay the medical bills. I don't know the extent to to which that evidence is going to play out or how much that's involved in his criminal case, but um, that's certainly been alleged in some of the jurisdictions. So those are some of the criminal elements of it and then mostly the way that his fees were used or how he tried to claim they were used and what he would pass on to the mother. And what expenses he would pay, and how all that was documented and explained to the couple, and what's told to the couple. That's where the ethical elements come into play.
1: The most disturbing thing that I've read, though, was an interview with a nurse from Utah. She's an OBGYN nurse, and she has said that four years ago she went to some state authorities because, as somebody who's worked with, moms delivering for years, including birth moms who are going to relinquish rights of their child. One of the things that she observed over time with many of the women that Paul Peterson had brought over was this unusual behavior on their part, meaning that a lot of times birth moms will They might want to hold the baby once, to talk to the baby and say goodbye, but there's some kind of emotional separation that oftentimes occurs just because it makes sense. I mean, this is a difficult decision, a difficult process, and so you'd want there to be some closure if you needed that, but you'd want there to also probably be some separation because it's a difficult grieving period that you're facing as well. And that one of the things that she observed was that some of the Marshallese women who had delivered were acting in the opposite of that. They were singing to their babies, they're wanting to hold their babies, they're wanting to feed their babies. And she became concerned that perhaps some of the women didn't understand this process or what was going to happen. And her allegations, again, this has not been adjudicated yet, was that she attempted to talk to some of the women, but the only interpreter available was the interpreter that Paul Peterson was using and that she was consistently reassured that everything was above board. And yet another couple, when they, when their attorney actually said we want an independent interpreter and began talking to at least one birth mom that this couple was expecting to receive her baby, it became clear to them that this birth mom was under the impression that this child would be returned to her at some point.
0: I'm not sure which case you're referring to, but it might've been my case. That was exactly the experience that I had with my clients. I was asked to represent a couple and, and, and the issue that is really, really difficult in these Marshallese adoptions, which by the way, many have been done that are lit, legitimate with from the Marshallese community in the United States. There are parts of the United States with high Marshallese folks and they, they do place for adoption and they're legitimate adoptions. So not all Marshallese adoptions are unethical and bad, but the biggest difficulty we have is the translation issue. These ladies don't speak English, but they're coming to the United States and they're having to participate in essentially a legal process where legal documents are having to be explained to them and translated to them and they have to agree and consent and sign and it's official. And that's what happened in my situation. My, very briefly, my couple took the baby home from the hospital. This was about at a hospital about an hour away from my office. They took the baby home noon or one o'clock, The arrangements were made because I had to get a separate translator. Mr. Peterson asked to use his his caretaker to translate. And I said, no, I want an independent translator. I insist on it for my clients. We're going to make sure that she understands. I had a social worker that was not his as well that I hired it separately. Because I said, I'm only going to do this and my couple's only going to do this if they're independent folks working. And those are ethical standards we insisted on and we're glad we did. About an hour into the session with the social worker and the translator, they came out and the social worker told me she believes that when this child turns 18, that they're coming back to the Marshall Islands to be with them and their family. And I've tried to explain to her that that's not the case But she said that's what she had been told when she agreed to do this. After it was clarified to her for another 45 minutes, she refused to sign and said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to keep this baby. And the hardest phone call i 've had in sixteen years as an adoption attorney was when I had to call my clients who were home introducing this new baby to their young their other siblings um, and, and children and tell them they needed to bring that baby back to my office and that the adoption wasn 't happening and and it was just heartbreaking one of the worst adoption experiences I have had and and it was and it was just terrible for for everybody involved.
1: I just have to say how much I respect, though, the fact that you were were really consistent with your ethics, uh, because I'm sure that there might have been a way to just use that other interpreter and things to proceed accordingly. But but I think I really do believe that most prospective parents, again, they want it to be a win-win for everyone. And I also want to really emphasize what you said, because... Two of our adoptions were from Russia, and there have been so many exposés coming out of different countries saying that, you know, children are being kidnapped and placed in these orphanages, or they're being stolen, or people are being misled and misrepresented, and there have been plenty of cases like that. But I also really, really want to underscore the fact there have been hundreds of thousands of kids, you know, across the world who needed a parent and were successfully placed with a parent. And I know we were able to go over to Russia and go to the orphanage. And we actually found years later, a person over in Russia who was able to find the birth parents because we wanted to answer every question we possibly could for our children. And we did connect with my older daughter's birth mom and her story was very consistent with what we were told. Uh, in the orphanage. And it's been just a win-win for everybody involved. And so I really want just to underscore the fact that there are, there is a need in, in many places, including the United States for parents to parent children. And there's an opportunity for that. And not all of these kind of horror stories that we hear about are true or certainly don't represent most adoptions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you're you're making that point. And it's an important point for us to finish on a little bit, which is these scams, the dishonest people, those involved that are trying to just get a chunk of the money that are resulting in increased costs for adoptive couples in order to get their Children, these are minority situations. Unfortunately, they are with the advent of social media and the internet. As I said earlier, they're becoming a little bit more common. But overall, when you look at—I don't know statistics. Um, I'm sure we could find them. But, but in my experience and my practice in 15 years doing this, it's a—it's a small percentage that are scams that are disrupted because of malintent or dishonesty or, or. There are many adoptions that fail for legitimate reasons and and a change of mind or other circumstances that, that disallow the adoption to go forward, but it is really a small percentage. With the, but there are enough attempts going on that people do need to be educated about the precautions and the red flags and the screenings just to be educated. And so I think that's really important, but it should not ever dissuade someone from trying if they're gonna build their family through adoption like I did and like you did. Adoption can be a really beautiful, wonderful thing where everybody is healthy and happy and and it, it turns out best and, and I see much more of that than I do of these difficult situations.
1: That's such a great note to end on. And one of the things that I was thinking about when you talk about or we read about adoptions falling through is a couple of things. You know, statistically, what I've read is that 80% of domestic adoptions are successful. So that about 20% of them fall through the first time. But even more importantly, is that with, you know, by paying attention, by educating yourself, by being smart, by being patient, eventually adoption can be 100% successful. Well, I want to thank you so much, Derek, for coming on today. And we'll make sure to have your contact information on our website because you just provided so much I think, reassurance and information for anyone who is considering being involved in the adoption process, whether that's a birth mom or prospective uh, parent. So thank you again for coming on and talking about a subject that I think is near and dear to both of our hearts.
0: It is. I really appreciate inviting me, Joni. Thank you. It was a great discussion.
1: You have been listening to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our guest today has been Derek Williams. Our topic has been preventing and recognizing adoption scams. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.